think the last line of that song is very fitting in the midst of the chaos of our world. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. We need to be reminded that we are in a spiritual battle. We have an enemy that hates us, that hates God's church. And as the song started off, it's, we have a firm foundation, and it is God's world. It is God's word. And when the world around us feels like it's crumbling to pieces, God's word will not falter, and he will not forsake us. Our affirmation of faith today from the Westminster Larger Catechism uh, speaks to this. And uh, as we prepare to do this, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be in Luke 9, 37 to 51. And we're kind of going to transition right from the, uh, this question into the message. So I'll let you get there so you're prepared. The question this morning is, how is the word made effectual to salvation? Let's read the answer together. The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ of conforming them to his image and subduing them to his will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Again, this question comes from the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is part of our church's confessional standards And it has a lot to say about the effectual nature of the Word of God. Now, we don't use that word effectual very often uh, in our daily daily language, our daily talk. Uh, But it sounds a lot like one of its synonyms, effective, right? God's Word is effective. We could also say it's productive or it's successful, it's fruitful, it's powerful, it's beneficial. In other words... How does God's word produce in us the type of results that it is intended to? Both in our initial conversion, right, as our eyes are opened to our sin and to our need for Christ and his atoning blood, and then in our steady and continual growth in the Christian life. How does God's word work in those two ways, to both bring us to him initially and then to keep us and to grow us? And I think we first need to ask ourselves, do we believe, as the scriptures tell us, that the word of God is living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts? Do we believe this? Does God's word really pierce and cut deep in our lives? Does it expose our sinful hearts as it is intended to do? Do we allow it to do that? Do we take the time to slow down and let God's word do that work? Does it cause 
for, does it cause us to long for deeper intimacy with the Lord? And does it inform the way that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ and seek to love our neighbors as ourselves? Does it speak to the brokenness in our lives and the brokenness in the world around us? Or do we look at the Word of God as just speaking in generalities about our world today? Should I just stand up here and paint this broad brush and give some nice Christian platitudes and send you on your way and say, good luck trying to navigate the craziness of the world? I hope that's not what is happening here. I hope God's word is being handled faithfully by those whom he has entrusted to shepherd the flock here at Livingstone Church. I hope that the preaching of God's word is an effectual means of doing what the answer to the catechism says. Enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners. We all need that every Sunday, don't we? Myself included. I love what the next part says. Of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ. That's really going to be the focus of our scripture passage this morning. We're going to see the disciples and their miserable failures. Their need to be drove out of themselves and drawn to Christ. And we are going to seek to apply that truth to our own lives as well. That we might also be drove out of ourselves. Drove out of focusing on our own kingdoms and be drawn to Christ and to his kingdom. This has been our desire as we have faithfully worked our way through Luke. As I mentioned last week, we're, we're wrapping things up. Uh, this is our last sermon in Luke until the fall. Uh, this summer we're going to be spending 14 weeks in the Psalms. Uh, really looking forward to that. I think we're going to be addressing a lot of things that people in our world are wrestling with right now as we dig into the psalms we see psalms of lament right we're going to see psalms of thanksgiving psalms of praise uh, and it'll be a great time to to kind of navigate that element of of our faith but as we wrap up luke here uh, today for for the next 14 weeks it will be helpful for us to remember where we are at in luke uh, where we've been and then we're going to get a sneak peek at where we're going uh, when we return in the fall Remember way back in chapter 1 when we started, Luke set out to give his readers a detailed account of all the things that had been accomplished by Jesus. And there has been a tremendous focus so far in Luke on his authority and his power. We've seen this in the promises surrounding his birth. We've seen his victory over sickness and demons and death in his earthly ministry. And we've seen the forward-looking hope of his reign as the eternal king over his eternal kingdom, where all of his and our enemies, sin and death and the devil, will be ultimately defeated. And his majesty and his glory will be displayed forever for all to see. It is a glorious narrative that we find ourselves right in the middle of here. And we find ourselves now at this turning point in Luke's gospel in chapter 9. And we see that the disciples, after everything that has happened up to this point, we see that the disciples still don't get it, right? They're still confused. 
They're still too much in love and too much giving their allegiance to the world system. They're still too much grabbing for power in the wrong places. And I think we need to do some serious soul-searching ourselves. It's easy for us, just like with the things going on in our world, it's easy for us to look at the disciples, to point our fingers at them, and to say, after all that you guys have witnessed and experienced, you still don't get it. What is wrong with you, right? We need to let God's word humble us and pierce our hearts and our souls this morning. So brothers and sisters, let us listen and pay attention to God's holy and inspired word as we read Luke 9, 37 through 51. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great." John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray that your word would do its work this morning, that it would pierce our souls, that it would cause us to be drove out of ourselves and drawn unto Christ. God, put these words into our ears that we might hear, that we might believe, that we might trust you and walk with you. We pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I mentioned a bit about the overall flow of Luke's gospel, and we saw that last week as, as well. We saw the twin themes uh, 
kind of these questions, who is Jesus and what has he come to do? Kind of the first focus, right? And then the second focus is what should our response be in light of that? In light of who he is and what he's come to do, how should we respond? And this has really come to the forefront in chapter 9. This chapter is really a turning point in Luke. Remember, Jesus has been traveling around, casting out demons, healing. He's been traveling. His disciples have been with him. He's raised people from the dead. He saved his disciples from a deadly storm. And throughout all of that, Jesus has been the main actor. He has been the main focus. And we've kind of just seen the disciples tagging along for the ride. But in the beginning of chapter 9, everything changes. Jesus called the 12 to himself, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to heal and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, on the one hand, this was a dangerous move to give the disciples this type of power and authority. Obviously, Jesus knew what he was doing, but the disciples still were not ready for this type of responsibility. Their training was not yet complete. They needed to be humbled some more. If you've ever seen the movie The Karate Kid, uh, this is kind of like when Daniel is in training and Mr. Miyagi tells him to wash and wax the car, uh, to sand the deck, to paint the fence, right? Wax on, wax off, and Daniel's like, why am I doing all this work? Like, this is ridiculous, right? But finally, we get to see what it was all about, that it was all in preparation for his training, right? And that's like the process of Christian discipleship, isn't it? You don't become a karate champion like Daniel LaRusso by just sheer natural talent. It takes hard work and discipline. The Christian life is not easy, right? It takes discipline to walk with the Lord and to grow in our faith. And it's also not just about mountaintop experiences. You don't just go to summer camp, or you just don't, don't just go to some conference, and your life is changed forever. We saw that last week, didn't we? Peter, James, and John up on the mountain with Jesus as Jesus is transfigured. But that wasn't enough to carry them through the rest of their Christian lives. And just before that, just before the transfiguration, Jesus had told them that they need to deny themselves, that they need to take up their crosses daily and follow him. So this, this is a very interesting chapter. This chapter is just full of tons of contrasts and juxtapositions. And again, it's the turning point in Luke as Jesus' journey to the cross begins to come into the foreground. Like I said, it's been mostly power and authority, Jesus' majesty being displayed up until this point. But things are all starting to turn here in this section in Luke chapter 9. We're going to look at this. There's four pretty short sections here. We're actually going to see, if you just read each one of these sections individually, um, it might be kind of hard on the surface to see how they're all related, but they are very much interrelated uh, to the, the context and to the events that are happening that we've seen so far in chapter 9. And this first scene here that we see starting in verse 37 is the day after the transfiguration. Jesus and the inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John, they come down off the mountain and they are met here by this big crowd. And there's a lot of similarities here with previous encounters, different things that we've seen happen. Jesus is approached by a man whose only son is severely afflicted by a demon. 
This is actually the third time that we've seen in Luke so far someone crying out to Jesus for their only child. And it says that the man begged Jesus. He came and he begged Jesus to heal his son. And by this point, this father is desperate. He's tried everything, and Jesus is his last and only hope. And what I think is really ironic here, especially in light of the beginning of chapter 9, is that he had begged the other nine disciples who were not up on the mountain, the others who remained down, he had begged them, and they were unable to cast the demon out of this boy. Well, what's going on here? What, what just happened at the beginning of chapter 9? Weren't they given power and authority over demons? Weren't they given this authority to, to heal and to cast out demons? Now, I might be speculating a little bit here, but I think based on what we're going to see here in the third and fourth sections of our passage this morning, I think the disciples were letting the power and authority that Jesus had granted them, I think they were letting it get to their heads. In this same account in Matthew and Mark, the disciples asked Jesus, why were we, not una why were we unable to cast this demon out of the boy? And Jesus points to two things. First, their lack of faith, and second, their lack of prayer. Could it be that the disciples just thought this was automatic, right? Like one plus one equals two just works every time. They could just walk up to someone who's demon-possessed and say, be gone in Jesus' name, and no matter if they're having a bad day, if they haven't had their quiet times, right, if they haven't been really trusting in Jesus, they could still just cast demons out of people whenever they wanted. I wonder... Is this how you and I live the Christian life some days? We have all of these wonderful promises from the Lord, but we just expect them all to be automatic as if there is no response needed on our part. No death to self. No picking up our cross and carrying our cross. It doesn't work that way. It's not how the Christian life works. James and I have both quoted in the past from Matt Papa's catchy tune, Stay Away From Jesus. The song starts out, You won't ever hear this song on Christian radio, because the Jesus that I serve is not safe. He'll say, take your cross and die, so if you want a comfy life, stay away from Jesus. He doesn't call us to a predictable, comfortable life. He doesn't call us to a one plus one always equals two kind of life. Every day requires walking by faith. And the disciples weren't any less dependent upon Jesus on a day-to-day -day basis just because they walked with him and had been granted this power and authority to heal and to cast out demons and to preach the gospel. But we see here that they failed, and they failed miserably. And Jesus lets them know it. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. That's not a compliment, folks. <laughs> and we need, to see, we need to hear those same words spoken to us at times. Oh, faithless and twisted church. Oh, faithless and twisted believers. But look at the response of Jesus after that. Look at the compassion of our Lord he comes at the request of this father. He rebukes the unclean spirit. He heals the boy and gives him back to his father. 
And there is a picture here, there's a beautiful picture here, albeit not fully complete, of the restoration and reconciliation of children to the Father. Do you think it's an accident here that the only son, the only son of his heavenly Father is the one who is restoring to wholeness the only son of this earthly Father? I think there's a beautiful connection in this picture here of what is happening, what Jesus is doing. It shows his steadfast love. It shows the compassion of our Heavenly Father. And the response to this is a correct response by everyone who is there. It says in verse 43, They were all astonished at the majesty of God. They were all astonished at the majesty of God. But notice how quickly Jesus then shifts gears on them. Notice that he is concerned with greater things. The display of God's authority and power over demons is a good thing, but it is not the ultimate thing. It is not why he came and dwelt among us, just so he could display his authority and power over demons. He is about to remind his disciples again of his ultimate purpose in coming. So you see in verse 43, they're all astonished at the majesty of God. And then notice what it says at the beginning of the next section. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, and we see these two words, astonished and marveling. They've been used over and over in Luke, going all the way back to the beginning where where they're astonished at at Jesus in the temple, and people are astonished at his preaching. These these words, astonished and marveled, just continue to be used over and over about who Jesus is and what he's been doing. So while, while the crowds are, are going crazy and freaking out and saying, whoa, this is amazing, what does Jesus do? He pulls his disciples aside while they're all seeking this mountaintop experience, right? We just saw that mountaintop experience. Now it's like, it's like Peter up on the mountain saying, hey, Jesus, can I, build, can I build three tents here? And can we keep this? Can we keep this thing going, right? That's probably how the crowd is feeling right now. Like, whoa, this is awesome. Jesus, stay in our town. Stay and heal everybody, right? Display your power and authority. But he pulls them aside in the midst of this, and he gives them a very important command. And this is where the title of the message comes from this morning. Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. Now this, let these words sink into your ears, is an idiom that literally translated, it says, put these words into your ears. Take these things, I'm saying, put them into your ears. Okay, that's what Jesus is telling his disciples here. Put these words into your ears. And this is a great reminder, especially on the heels of Peter and James and John's experience on the mountaintop the day before. What did we see? Jesus is transfigured, right? Peter says, let's build three tents. Moses and Elijah are there. All of a sudden, they vanish. Cloud comes. They're enveloped in this cloud. Jesus doesn't even speak to them. The Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son, my chosen one. Listen to him, right? Peter, James, and John the day before had just been told, listen to Jesus. Now here we have Jesus talking to the disciples, and he's saying, listen to me, right? Put these words into your ears. Are we getting the point yet here? 
Are these words sinking into our ears yet? What are the words? What does Jesus say? The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Just earlier in this chapter, he similarly foretold his death in verses 21 and 22. And there he strictly charged and commanded his disciples to tell no one. And here we see a similar thing. We see that this saying was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to even ask Jesus about it. So these events in in chapter 9 here are all very intricately tied together. And there have been some majestic revealings of God's power and glory. But again, there is this juxtaposition amidst the, the majesty and the, and the revealing and the declaration of who he is. There's also this, there's this hiding, there's this concealing of what is about to happen. And again, I think this is because the disciples are not yet ready, right? They haven't completed their training yet. They're complaining about waxing the car and sanding the deck and painting the fence, not realizing that this is all part of the cost of discipleship and following in the footsteps of their master. There is no Christianity without the cross. There is no good news without a crucified and risen Savior. And there is no Christ-likeness in our lives, no growth in grace without cross-carrying and dying to ourselves. That is the word that Jesus tells them to put into their ears. And the disciples had to learn this the hard way. Their failures are recorded here for the world to see. I think, kind of a side note here, one thing that I think points to the the validity and the truth of Scripture, if somebody wants to write an account of some powerful movement that's going to change the world. The main contributors in the story, right, the, the disciples themselves, the ones who were going to go out, like, you're not going to make yourselves look like fools, right? You're not going to make yourselves look weak and powerless. How are you going to go out and, and change the world and get all these people to follow you when you reveal that you're a bunch of knuckleheads, right? So thankfully, the Spirit of God has revealed to us their failures. They're recorded here for the whole world to see. And again, I think for us, not so that we would point our fingers and say, I can't believe you guys, right? But rather that we would do a heart check ourselves. That we would see just how prone we are as well to wander. Just how prone we are to make it all about us, just like they did. We see the pride that dwells deep within our own hearts reflected in their conversation following Jesus' statement about him being delivered over into the hands of men. Look with me at verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. And I love how Jesus responds. He could have simply responded with some words, He could have called them a faithless and twisted generation again. He could have ignored them and allowed their pride to continue to fester. Instead, in his grace and mercy, he gave them a very concrete object lesson. He takes a young child, puts him by his side, and tells them what it really means 
to be great. He said, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. I'll read a quote to you from J.C. Ryle in his commentary on Luke, speaking about this encounter that the disciples have. And he's talking about the heart of man. He's talking about how prone we are to pride. He said, there is something very instructive in this fact. It ought to sink down deeply into the heart of every Christian reader. Of all sins, there is none against which we have such need to watch and pray as pride. It is a pestilence that walketh in darkness, and a sickness that destroyeth at noonday. No sin is so deeply rooted in our nature. It cleaves to us like our skin. Its roots never entirely die. They are ready at any moment to spring up and exhibit a most pernicious vitality. No sin is so specious and deceitful. It can wear the garb of humility itself. It can lurk in the hearts of the ignorant, the ungifted, and the poor, as well as in the minds of the great, the learned, and the rich. Let a prayer for humility and the spirit of a little child form part of our daily supplications. Of all creatures, none has so little right to be proud as man. And of all men, none ought to be so humble as the Christian. Is it really true that we confess ourselves to be miserable sinners and daily debtors to mercy and grace? Are we the followers of Jesus, who was meek and lowly of heart, and made himself of no reputation for our sakes. Then let that same mind be in us, which was in Christ Jesus. Let us lay aside all high thoughts and self-conceit. In lowliness of mind, let us esteem others better than ourselves. Let us be ready on all occasions to take the lowest place. And let the words of our Savior ring in our ears continually. He that is least among you all, the same shall be great. And it's not just this jockeying for personal power and this one-upmanship here among the disciples that is so cancerous for our souls. It is also the sin of tribalism that we see here in John's interaction with Jesus about the one who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. John says that they tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. I think this might be the early church version of Presbyterians and Baptists lining up on two different sides and questioning who is really more for Jesus and who is against him. Or even two different Presbyterian denominations arguing amongst each other who is more right, who is more in line with what Jesus taught. Or brother versus brother, or sister versus sister, even in our own churches. There are many things right now dividing people. There are many things dividing even our churches. And we need to 
go back to the root, and we need to see that pride is at the root of all these things, and we need to kill it and put it to death and confess it and love one another. And whether it's this individual pride or some type of group pride, Jesus will have none of it. His disciples, they still have a lot to learn. And the rest of this journey will be filled with pain and heartache. The journey is about to take a big turn. And that's what we see in verse 51. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So chapter 9, verse 51, is really the, the turning point in the entire Gospel of Luke. Up until this point, like we said, Jesus has been displaying his, his power and his authority and his majesty. He's been hinting at what's going to happen. And now in verse 951, it says that he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. This phrase here, setting his face, it's a Semitic idiom. It means to determine, a tr to make up your mind definitely. So from now on, from this point, Jesus' focus is on going to the cross to accomplish that for which he was sent to accomplish his exodus as he spoke about with Moses and Elijah on the mountain of transfiguration. Think about getting a clear picture of what's going on if you've ever maybe been out in the woods, been hunting, or maybe you've been at, uh, in a stadium and you've had a pair of binoculars and you're trying to, you know, if you've been at a Packer game and you've had some binoculars trying to see what's on the field, you first just, maybe somebody else was using them and you pull them up and it's like, whoa, everything's all blurry. And you finally get zoomed in and focused on on the object that you're looking at. That's what is happening in 951 here. Jesus, the, the picture maybe has been a little fuzzy up to this point, right? Like he's been given hints about what he's coming to do. He's been telling his disciples about what's going to happen. He's made some, some mentions about going to the cross, but now everything comes into focus, right? From here on out, from 951 until the end of, of Luke's gospel, it's going to be crystal clear focus that Jesus is going to the cross. And there's some time that we have to wait to get back to that, right? But as we wrap, wrap up Luke here, and as we anticipate coming back in the fall over these next three months, what's the takeaway for us? Do I just want us to feel sad and depressed like the disciples are a bunch of bums and we are too? To feel that we're worthless as disciples and followers of Jesus? No, not at all. That's not the focus here. But the focus is to humble us. It is, as the catechism question said, to drive us out of ourselves and to draw us to Christ. It's to bring that bigger picture into clearer focus. We might think that Jesus is being harsh here with his disciples. But the reality is, is that they needed to be humbled. They needed to be reminded of their own sins and their own failures and their dependence upon him. Like us, they were prone to wander. They were prone to leave the God they love. So will we, like them, will we heed Jesus' call to put these words, put his words into our ears, to listen to God's chosen son? to walk with him as he calls us to, taking up our crosses, denying ourselves and following him. Not seeking to be greatest in the kingdom,
but seeking to be the least. Not looking at other Christians with suspicion when they are also doing the Lord's work. And will we do this together as God's chosen people? Will we spur one another on? Will we listen together? Will we encourage one another in our cross-bearing and our self-denying work of Christian discipleship? Will we extend the grace to one another that Jesus clearly extended to his disciples as they stumbled along their path of discipleship? Beloved, let us take these words and put them into our ears. Let us pray. Father, we need this reminder constantly. We need this reminder day in and day out of who Jesus is, of what he came to do, that he came to bear our sins upon that cross, to put them away from us, to reconcile us to you, Father. And he calls us in discipleship in humility, to carry our crosses, to follow him, to love and serve one another, to not seek to be great in the kingdom, but to seek to be servants, to be like a little child. Father, would you do that work that only your spirit can do through your word in each one of our hearts? And may we collectively live out these truths of the gospel among a world that is so desperate right now for hope, so desperate right now for relief from the fighting, from the division. God, we believe that true peace is found in you and you alone. May we live out that reconciling peace to the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.